0: Well good morning Freedom Church. Uh, Today we're looking at the the last in our series of Paul's letter to the Colossians and I hope you'll agree it's been a fascinating look at this letter written to a comparatively unknown and young church. Uh, Butters kicked us off with that really big challenge which was to live a life worthy of Jesus but he also had that parallel encouragement which was that god would equip us to do so we've looked at the supremacy of christ and how by maintaining that bigger vision of who he is and what he has done will allow us to hold on to the treasure that big picture vision that paul had that allowed him to uh, go through all the things that he went through to ensure that the message of Christ is proclaimed. That message that his salvation is for all, that Jesus plus nothing message. No add-ons The uh, from, from the potential from, from the Judaizers, all the mystic cults. It was Jesus plus nothing for your salvation. This salvation brought with it a new life. And so then we then learnt how Uh, We were to put to death or put away the old things, uh, the old vices that would characterize our old life. And then Matt in that wonderful uh, 308 point sermon uh, where he talks about this really lovely analogy of God having laid out garments for us to, to choose to pick up and put on. These garments like compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. And then we get to today's passage, which James is going to read for us uh, just now. What does this look
1: like in practice? And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, be submissive to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and don't be bitter toward them. Children, Obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children, so they won't become discouraged. Slaves, obey your human masters in everything. Don't work only while being watched in order to please men, but work wholeheartedly, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do it enthusiastically, as something done for the Lord and not for men knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong he has done, and there is no favouritism. Masters, supply your slaves with what is right and fair, since you know that you too have a master in heaven. Devote yourselves to prayer, stay alert in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open the door to us for the message. To speak the mystery of the Messiah for which I am in prison, so that I may reveal it as I am required to speak. Act wisely towards outsiders, making the most of the time. Your speech should always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you should answer each person. When Jenny and I
0: were dating, uh, one day we decided that we were going to make a chocolate cake together. Um, so we, we got a tried and tested recipe from, from a recipe book of uh, my parents and we got all the ingredients and we mixed the batter, poured it into the tin, put it in the oven. It was preheated at the right temperature. And when it was done, we brought it out and we did the weird thing that you do with a skewer that I don't understand how it works, but someone does. Unfortunately, Jenny did at the time. Cake was ready. It was done. So we took it out. We let it cool And then we took it out of the tin and then made like an amazing vanilla butter icing, a real unctuous butter icing all over the top. And then it was ready. We cut a slice and as you pulled it out, it was like that kind of brownie cake that you get, all moist and delicious inside with this butter icing on top. It it looked like a sort of pint of Guinness in, in, uh, in cake format. And so I took a bite Ah, straight out again. We'd somehow managed to do what you'd only normally find in like a 90s teen sitcom. We'd managed to mistake the sugar for salt. So this beautiful chocolate cake that we'd taken ages to make had hundreds of grams of salt in it and not a single crystal of sugar. You see the Proof of the pudding is very much in the eating. This thing looked phenomenal, it was amazing, it was beautiful, but it was utterly vile. I'd have rather have had fruit. Now the previous two and a half chapters of Colossians have been concerned mainly with the church's teaching and understanding their new identity in Christ and being able to resist the the alternative teaching that seems to follow Paul's teaching around. But now we move on to the proof of the doctrinal pudding. This isn't for show. Verse 17 states that whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. See, this isn't constrained to a Sunday. This isn't constrained to ceremonies or rituals that you perform. The knowledge of your new life, your status before God, Paul says, is to permeate all aspects of our lives. So practically, what does this look like? Well, there's two major themes in this morning's passage, and I've called it the rules of engagement. We've got in the house and in the world. So as I said in the prior text, it's concerned with uh, the church and its members, but it now switches to life at home. The Christians in Colossae, like uh, us in Liverpool, are now living new lives in Christ. But they are living in that already and not yet tension of God's kingdom. That Christ is victorious, but we're not going to see the full expression, enjoy the full expression of that until he comes again. So this means that the institutions of the day remain. Their newfound freedom from sin and their equality that they now have in Christ did not mean that they were free from the the social structures of their day. And as Christians, we need to be able to relate to each other and non-believers within these institutions in a way that's appropriate and is evident that we have Christ in me, the hope of glory. So here in verse 18, Paul adapts something that was really well known in the Roman Empire and has been had been around for hundreds of years. These were the household codes. See, we're not the latest generation to find this section potentially inflammatory. I know this section has always been an inflammatory section. In our culture, the talk of submission is fraught with tension. And that Paul didn't use these verses to outright condemn slavery has been to many a bit of an issue. However, it must be understood that this would also have represented an inflammatory section to those hearers in uh, Asia Minor in the first century. Just for a different reason, we must understand the context in which this was written. See, household uh, codes were commonplace in Asia Minor in those days. Whether you were a Jew or a Gentile or a Roman, you would have known that, uh, or you would have known of household codes. The Greeks had them as well as the Romans, Aristotle, Plato, uh, Dionysius, they all would have either commented on or had their own household codes. Indeed, these were so well established that the the powers that be in in Rome, they were actually innately suspicious of any new religion, any Eastern cult, uh, because they were worried that it might subvert their good traditional household codes. So why would Paul's have been inflammatory in his day. Because all the other codes of the day were written to men, elite men at that. They were instructions to the male head of the household and how he was to conduct his household appropriately. And this was done in part through instructions on how to conduct his relationships. And it's the same relationships that we see in this passage. His wife, his children, and the household of that day would have included slaves or bond servants the Roman head of the household, though, was to rule as a strong, noble man. So that the household codes of the day was how to rule, how to rule your wife, how to rule your children, how to rule your slaves. And you were to expect nothing but obedience in return. The head of the household was known as the pater familias. He was, his rule was absolute. He literally had the power of life and death over those within his family. Uh, That would include his wife, his children, and if they were married, if they were older, their spouses, um, as well as the slaves. But Paul here has thoroughly Christianized the code. In the first century, it was rare indeed for anyone other than the paterfamilias Familias to be uh, addressed directly. Uh, very rare for the wives to be addressed and less so the children. And slaves were never addressed. See, in addressing these members directly, Paul gives them a dignity and a value that they didn't have before. He treats them as though they are responsible human beings, capable of making moral and ethical choices, which is why he addresses them and asks them to make those choices. See, they're not just the extension of the elite male's possession or his, the expression of his dignity, a cameo appearance in him living his best life. See, their dignity and their value are represented by a call to moral choices and it's an extension of what we've seen in chapter 2 of this letter already in verses 10 and 11 it says you are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your creator in christ there is not greek and jew circumcision and uncircumcision barbarian Scythian, slave and free but christ is all and in all And in Paul's other letters to the Galatians, you have that famous chapter 3, verse 28, where he says this, There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Jesus doesn't play favourites. Regardless of your background, your social standing, your gender, he died for all that all may be set free. But the society in Colossae, that Roman society where Christians lived, still played favorites. The Roman culture of the day definitely played favorites and they brutally dealt with anyone who didn't toe the party line. So Paul doesn't challenge or demand those who are socially vulnerable to overthrow their oppressors, to tear up the rule book, but instead he infuses the rule book with christ centeredness In doing so, he sets a motion of transformation of the codes, which would make the family unit of the day unrecognisable compared to that harsh rule of the pater familias. True to this, there's a call for husbands to love rather than rule, for parents to be gentle with their children rather than to just expect obedience and the master to treat slaves with fairness. These things all address the stronger and more dominant party within the relationship. And they have an expectation of duty towards the other household members, not just to sit back and expect obedience. Again, this is normally entirely absent from the household codes of the day. Now, you may also have spotted that in uh, seven, I think, out of nine verses, Jesus, uh, Paul, sorry, Paul refers to Jesus as Lord or Jesus as master. Um, Usually when something is repeated to that extent on a letter that space is precious and also expensive, Paul's going to be doing it for emphasis. So he wants the church at Colossae and Freedom Church not to miss this. I believe he deliberately uses that repetition of Jesus as Lord, Jesus as Master, to emphasise that there is one true Master, one King over all things. The true Master, the Master who loves his people, who, despite being Lord, laid down his life, made himself nothing for us, for them. And he asks us to follow him, to take up our cross in humble submission to him and to each other, each day. And through submission to Christ and to each other, we can radically change our relationships. As Douglas Moo said in his excellent commentary on Colossians, says this, slaves and masters ultimately serve the same Lord. And that fundamental spiritual reality not only relativizes their earthly relationship, but even set the stage for its abolishment. The other thing the repetition of Jesus as Lord does is that it not only relativizes the role of each person, but it adds an overarching rule. Paul is saying, do these things, but as long as it's in line with your fealty to Christ. As long as it's fitting to the Lord, in verse 18, or that it pleases the Lord, verse 20, or it is in fearing the Lord, verse 22. And in addition to this newfound sense of dignity and equality, and value. It says in verse 23, to work as if you're doing it for the Lord and not for men. See, this radically not only changes our relationships, but also our work. As N.T. Wright said, the task may appear unimportant or trivial, but the person doing it is never that. And he or she has the opportunity to turn the job into an act of worship. See, with Jesus as their ultimate master, their true position in God's kingdom is secure and it's equal. And then the worthiness of the heavenly master and the knowledge that uh, his fairness and justice, as well as that promised heavenly reward of inheritance, also provided the motivation. No wonder the uh, relationships written here would have looked exceptionally different to those at the time and would have raised traditionalist Roman eyebrows. So it begs the question, do ours, does the way that I relate to my wife and my children stand out as different? So I treat them in a way that is loving and honoring and valuing their equality and their dignity before Christ. Or are they just extensions of my personality? Are their achievements actually my achievements, part of my pride? What about the relationships I have with my earthly master? I've got to be careful not to stretch this analogy too far, but the the closest relation I have to an earthly master that's being talked about here would be my, my boss at work. Does the relationship I have with her stand out as different? Do I work like I'm working for a master in heaven? Do I work like he deserves all that I have? That no task is trivial because I am not trivial and the one I'm working for ultimately deserves my all. What about the ones I look after? Do I treat them in a way that reflects the way that Christ loves me? How about you? How are your relationships with your boss, with your wife, with your husband, with your housemate, your children, your parents? Do they reflect this new life? that you have. Do they reflect the transforming power of the gospel within you? Now, it is hard, I know. One of the things I find the hardest is letting cynicism rule my heart, especially after Sunday, going through that week, and I hit work, and there's that cynicism within. So it is good for me, for you, to remember that this passage that we've read today is not in isolation. It's not an isolated set of rules. It has the full richness of Colossians behind it. We've read that Jesus, despite being over all creation, holy and set apart, has reconciled himself to us. And we're made new and we're able to put on things like compassion and kindness, humility, gentleness and patience, forgiveness, love and peace. But only by dwelling with Jesus, spending time with him, can we, by his Holy Spirit live lives that are characterised by the fruit of the Spirit. That great analogy that the tree doesn't concentrate to try and generate fruit. It's only in dwelling in rich soil, spending time with Jesus. Can we enjoy by his Spirit the relationships that are radically different to the harshness we see around us? This Friday I was um, praying and uh, ahead of this uh, preach and um, I then had to run quite, quite a few errands in the evening. All I wanted to do was just relax and just get home. Uh, but the errands needed doing. So it was fairly late and I'm driving along. And there was that car that we know in, in front of us where the person believes that gravity alone is enough to keep the accelerator moving. They had all the time in the world and I didn't. And I could feel myself just boiling inside at this so-and-so in front of me who wasn't going as fast as I wanted them to. And I just felt the Holy Spirit prompt me. And he said, that person in front of you has equal dignity and value to Jesus. Jesus does not favour you over them. And I could instantly feel my whole sort of personhood towards this uh, of the driver who, I've, who I'd not met uh, change radically. Now, I know that's small and I've um, used sort of similar things where, where the Holy Spirit's prompted me in, um, in meetings at work where there's a bit of tension, but it just shows you that uh, the Holy Spirit um, is the one who we need to dwell in to listen to, to be obedient to, if we're to have these radically different relationships. I'm not capable of doing it without him. So having given a framework of how to relate to people at home, Paul talks about relating to others in the world, outside the home. In chapter 4, verse 2, he says, We're to be devoted to prayer and alert in it with thanksgiving. With all that's come before, this reminder of our newfound dignity and our equality in Christ, that we've been reconciled with him and the hope of a radically different relationships. There is plenty of reason to be thankful. To be quick and alert for opportunities to be thankful for God helps to maintain that perspective of that true master in heaven that we talked about before. That we're all servants to the true king over all things. And it's one of the garments, again, that Matt in his 8,000 point sermon told us about. It's one of those garments that we can put on, that we can choose to put on. It's a hallmark characteristic of the new life that God has given us. And it's also a powerful deterrent to the things of the old life. It is very hard to be cynical, or for me anyway, when I'm being continually thankful to God for what he has done in my life. Verse 3 reminds us that we should pray for opportunities to speak with others about Jesus and what he has done. It talks about the mystery of the Messiah. Again, this is not a cult like Mithras. This isn't a uh, pagan Eastern um, religion where the initiation ceremony is sort of shrouded in secrecy and it's all hidden. No, the mystery here is that the mystery that is Christ that is the good news that Christ has taken our place, the mystery that God would reconcile the world to himself by entering the world, entering our muck and mire and sin and darkness and take our place, pay for all of my sin on the cross. That is the mystery, that God would put himself in our place is a mystery worth speaking about. So we should ask for every opportunity. And it says in verse five, use our time wisely when we get the opportunities, when God answers our prayer for more of them. And finally, Paul goes on to say, your speech should always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you should answer each person. Now, it's not universally uh, agreed upon what salt here uh, means, however, I'd say the consensus of the commentaries would refer to the contemporary Greco-Roman writings at the time, that salt is um, referring to speech that is winsome or witty. Now, it's not often you get to use a word like winsome, but if I were to describe that someone was winsome, you'd instantly know what they were like, or the feeling you get when that type of person talks to you. So Paul is asking the Colossians, and indeed us, that our speech to non-believers be gracious, warm, and winsome. Why? Well, it says, so that you may know how you should answer each person. Note here, it says each person, not each argument or each question. Paul is saying, don't win the debate, but lose the person. Don't try and steamroller someone, steamroller over their objections, or their questions, because you've got the right answer. Remember, you are loved by God. You have such incredible, incredible dignity and value, but so do they. You want to win the person, because all are equal before Jesus. So there you have it, Freedom Church. We're to be thankful for what God has done. We're to be reminded that our salvation is entirely reliant on Jesus and nothing else. We have new lives in him. So we're to put off the old and choose to don to wear the new things that God has laid out for us that characterise this new life. And then we're to live this new life in a way that uh, reflects what Jesus has done for us. And then lastly, we should tell others. We should tell others about him and what is available through him, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. God bless Freedom Church.